forever. Dog. They write, they talk, and talk about what they write. Tune in tonight, or whenever the time is right. It's the Writer's Panel with Ben Blacker, and it's starting now. Oh, yeah! This is a Dream Team lineup. Um, I was telling you all beforehand, I'm a fan of all of you, so I'm excited to dig in and talk about all of the movies that you've been making lately. What I'm going to do first is go around and have you introduce yourselves on the microphone so the listener knows what you sound like, and tell us um, some places they may have seen your name on their television or movie screen. And Eliza, let's start with you, please. Um, you're listening to the soothing sounds of Eliza Schlesinger, and you will know me from my Netflix specials. You'll know me from the Eliza Schlesinger sketch show. I was in Pieces of a Woman, although briefly, and Spencer Confidential, uh, both on Netflix. And uh, I'm probably playing a city that you're in currently. <laughs> uh, and you have this new movie coming out, uh, I think this week as of the release of this. June 23rd, good on paper. I wrote it and started it and executive produced it. And um, we're very excited for everyone to love it as much as we do. It's great. I really enjoyed it. So thanks for being here. Josh, please introduce yourself. Oh my God. Um, I'm Josh Rubin, uh, college humors, Josh Rubin. Um, but I, uh, directed a film called scare me with Aya cash and Chris red, uh, and werewolves within that, uh, Mishna Wolf, um, has written and so graciously, um, allowed me to, to come and, uh, shepherd, come to the theaters on June 25th and VOD on July 2nd. Great. And Mishna, please introduce yourself and then I'll say how much I love werewolves within. Um, I'm Mishna Wolf. <laughs> I'm the screenwriter of werewolves within and the bestselling author of I'm down a memoir. And, uh, I'm excited to be here. Thank you for being here. I love this movie so much. I'm so psyched to talk to you both about it. Uh, and Alice Wu, please tell us who you are and where folks have seen your terrific films. Thanks. Uh, I'm Alice Wu. Uh, I've made two films I wrote and directed that are spaced 15 years apart. Uh, one is called Saving Face that uh, was like a Sundance film Sony Classics released. And that came out in 2005. And the other is called The Half of It. Uh, and that came out on Netflix last year. They both feature um, Asian American lesbians. And apparently I am now like queen of the Asian American lesbians. <laughs> or so I've been told. So that's what I'm doing. We should say they are not just for Asian American lesbians because only I for Asian American lesbians. Half of it so much. I feel really cool. I, I, I have an Asian Twitter. American lesbian in my movie. <laughs> Do you? <laughs> Oh, yeah, man. she's my co-star. I got Margaret Cho, and I, I didn't make her a lesbian. So she has one, but we got, <laughs> we, we did it. <laughs> we made it. <laughs> um, I want to start by talking to uh, Josh and Alice. Um, both of you, uh, Werewolves Within and The Half of It, are your second films that you've directed, and, and you wrote your first films, and Alice, you wrote both films. Um, I want to talk about that. The storytelling you've learned going from your first film to your second film, um, you know, less about the sort of practicals of directing, but what did you learn about telling a story as a writer, director or a writer, director? Uh, and I don't know who wants to jump in. Uh, uh, you, oh, you want me to go first? All right. Um, oh, favor. Let's see. Well, there are 15 years between my two films because I, I actually, uh, I didn't start as a writer. I started as a computer scientist and then I made my first film when I was 35. 
Uh, and then I left the industry uh, to uh, take care of my mom. And so I, I wasn't thinking I'd ever make a second film. And so it's funny for me to think about what I've learned in between, because the truth is what I probably learned in between is I just lived more life. Um, and one of the things I would say that practically I think was helpful as a writer is I actually love long form improv. Uh, and uh, it's something I sort of fell into doing when I, um, you know, between the two films, not, I'm not, I'm not like amazingly good at it. It's just truly something I love. Um, and I particularly love this form called The Herald, which once you study The Herald, it's actually very, like if you watch 30 Rock, every episode of 30 Rock is basically a Herald, right? And so I learned a lot kind of about even just how you uh, sometimes structure comedic beats. Uh, but that all said, it's funny because I'm not really a comedy writer. Like both my films, I think, feature humor, but I, I think I'm very much a I would say I sort of make these humanistic comedies or more dramedies as they were, where I almost always cut for emotion before I cut for uh, 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 the joke. But I would also say I learned that from long form improv. You know, like when I teach improv to my students, I'm always telling them, do not go for the joke unless you're ending the scene. And, and those are all things. So sorry, that that's a little technical, but that's sort of the thing that comes to mind that I think um, I'm not sure it's something I didn't necessarily use in my first film. I think it's just a... But, by the time I started writing my second film, I could articulate it better in my head. Mm -hmm. Makes a lot of sense. Um, Josh, let's, you know, along those same lines, let's talk about the use of humor in both Scare Me and Werewolves Within and landing both the humor and the horror. I mean, that's something I love about both of those movies. Sure. Yeah. Uh, most people are like, how do you make horror comedy work? Um, is that, how, how, how is that possible? And it's like, well, you know, <laughs> you really have to be a barometer for your actors to make sure that they don't get caught trying to be funny. You know what I mean? And, and that they play the emotional stakes for real within the confines of that. It can be as big as you want. I mean, if you met like Robert Durst, um, or Carol Baskin, there are big personalities out there um, and they react to real circumstances in certain ways, and they all have feelings and emotions and and, and the like. And so that was that was a wonderful thing to sort of finding that tone and balancing the 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 horror and humor of it all. So, but yeah, big thing, you know, don't get caught trying to be funny. Um, don't overdo it. Um, and uh, and I guess you know just to to address you know your first question, I think if there's anything mm -hmm. I learned between you know, doing scare me and werewolves is, um, uh, that a, a movie is a living, breathing organism. It's, it's, it needs time. You know, you'll, you'll get through that first cut and think it's brilliant. And then maybe a week or terrible. And then a week later, you'll look at it again. It's like screenwriting, you know, um, and then realize, well, none of this lands or this maybe doesn't need all these things I was so selfishly in love with. Um, so giving it that time and space to breathe, putting it in the drawer, so to speak. And, um, and also standing true in your convictions that, if something in your gut doesn't feel right, like you have to stand against six people, five people, three people and say, I just, I'm sorry, this doesn't stink like it should. Um, and uh, yeah, and 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 stand true to your, you know, your gut. It, it makes a lot of sense. And Eliza, I saw you were nodding yourself. I mean, I feel like in Good on Paper, like there's the comedy that's supposed to be comedy, right? And then there's the sort of character-based comedy that is kind of a different animal to wrangle. And I'm curious to hear about, you know, writing both of those in this one script while also moving the narrative forward. Like, it's a lot to manage, it feels like. Well, there's always that added pressure 
You know, anything. I always think about this as someone who carefully watches anytime someone's like playing a comedian, you're just like, it, that's, is that how we would do it? Um, and to be hundred percent honest, the stand up for this movie, I completely made up on the spot. I figured if I can't improvise stand up, then what am I doing? So the stand up, I knew what I wanted to say. So I just kind of went with it. And now it's in the act. Um, a couple years later. Um, so the stand up took care of itself. It's the one thing that I could kind of, lean into. But then in terms of, you know, I just wanted a goal of mine was to make sure that I gave everybody funny lines uh, that they would want to say. I just as someone who's auditioned for so much, especially as a funny person, you get into these auditions and you're funny and they're like, so you're going to be the wife. She's kind of a bitch. She has five lines. And I don't want to do that audition. So I wanted to give actors lines that they were excited about while giving myself a vehicle versus just being in support of me and just being sort of one note. So I was very cognizant of that, giving them lines that I would want to steal that I gave to them that I just watched as they got to deliver. So that was that's, a big part of it. Yeah, that's great advice for, and I think it speaks to like writing characters that actors want to play. Um, and Mishnah, I wanted to talk to you about this. I mean, the characters in Werewolves just pop. Uh, and that is, look, you have an amazing cast, sure, but it starts with the characters on the page. Um, and I wanted to ask you about like digging in on those characters. What did you have to work with? Uh, and like, how, how do you even get started with that cast? I, I had like nothing to work with. Um, I had, you know, four people around a fire in a medieval town. So there was like a crone and a knight or like, you know, I can't even remember. But um, and and Josh had a huge amount of input on the characters and the casting, and he even he simplified the characters a little bit. But so many characters, um, and one of the things I did that really helped me in writing these characters is you know, I had some pictures. Could be this person. Could be this person. Could be this person. But sort of a voice, a rhythm um, that this character would have, and then I gave them like a credo, like a, a worldview, just one or two lines of dialogue. So I knew. Um, just starting out, at least I had a frame of reference for their worldview. And then it became a lot easier to, um, you know, sort of have them drive the movie um, because I knew what their motivations were for everything. And I knew what they were afraid of and avoiding and what they resented. Um, it was just a really easy way to get started. And then, you know, Josh took it from there. <laughs> Made it <Come> fantastic. <laughs> No, but I also think when you have good improvisers, you know, getting back to the Herald, Del Close, woo woo, um, you um, you do when you have great improvisers, they do bring ad libs that are better than anything you could think of, and um, I think that's you know that's just you know that's just the beauty of improvising, and it's I, I mean I, I can only speak from what I saw visiting set, but it, Josh created an environment that that seemed very um, creative. Can I add something to that? Um, in agreeing with that, you know, I've definitely been on sets where that are intimidating and it's awful because number one is not happy, so everybody's just on pins and needles. And I did this one film where they kept saying like there are no bad ideas, but everything you would suggest they would shoot down. And so I think there is something to creating an environment where 
from the get-go, you're like, you know, I know my director, Kimmy Gatewood, was great about that. And I was mindful of that. Creating an environment where people feel comfortable because improv is about being comfortable in that space, comfortable to take those risks and be silly or be ugly and you feel supported. Um, and there's there's not really a competition about that. Um, I know that we populated the majority of our cast with improvisers and people who were friends because I think there's something, you know, obviously if you're making Transformers, people need to audition. But for our movie, I was like, give the actor a break. Like I put my favorite bartender in the movie. I'm like, I know this person is an actor. I know they do comedy. I know they're funny. Give them the five lines. <laughs> just about like just giving people that a moment to have that ownership. Um, maybe it's because I was tired of auditioning, but we pretty much gave assigned all the roles. I don't think anybody auditioned for them. That's great. My God. <laughs> um, there, it's, I'm, I mean, I think all of you have some performance background and clearly like you don't, Alice. I mean, you're talking about improvising. That counts. Oh, I guess so. I do, yeah, I guess you're right. But that's, an, I would hardly, yeah. I've never let anyone do it in my public. real life come watch me improvise. Yes. <laughs> but even doing like, whether it's taking classes or teaching those classes, like you're, you're doing a sort of in the moment storytelling, right? That I think you can start to translate to the writing process. I'm curious to hear about the other side of that. Are there, and for, you know, those of you who, you know, I don't know if this is your first feature that you've written or your most, just your most recent feature, but like thinking back to the first ones, what did you need to learn that performance didn't prepare you for? What was, what were the challenges of writing a narrative feature? Um, and Josh, I'll throw it back to you uh, first on this one. I know you had done some short form stuff. Oh, sure. Yeah, that was how that was like how I came up. I mean, Scare Me is such an unfair example because, uh, you know, it it was it was comprised of all of the ideas I had over the years that developed cobwebs. You know, it was like, well, here, I'll just take these unfinished concepts that sort of served well or bode well for short stories, campfire stories, as it were, these kind of ideas I'd hit a wall on. But I think the big lesson is like, don't make something for the sake of making it. The lesson for me is like, when, when I finally was able to to bring a film to life or an idea to life when I said, I'm going to make this thing. I'm not waiting to be spoon fed, like to do the Duplassian thing, um, as it were, uh, was having something to say. Like I mm -hmm. was angry about what was happening in my community with me too. Like when Aziz got called out, I was like, really like everybody, you know? And then I was like, I'm going to, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write something that, you know, comments or speaks to my, um, frustration and the fire in my guts about what's kind of happening in the world, but about a very specific person. Um, and so I was writing personally and a bit to my passion without trying to be ham fisted. And I think that's the big lesson and what I'm trying to, you know, um, uh, to hold, truthfully to as opportunities present themselves like you want to come like make a thing and it's like well i just i have to have the fire in my guts about it and believe um in what i'm saying so it doesn't just end up into some kind of like purposeless soup you know sure absolutely you can have all the trappings of whatever genres you want to play in but unless you have that thing to say it's not gonna it's not gonna work right um Alice, I want to talk to you about that same thing. I mean, let's talk about that first feature, uh, Saving Face. Clearly, it came from having something to say. How do you start to put a movie together? How do you get people to trust you that you can write this thing? 
It's such a good question because honestly, um, I don't think I trusted myself that I would be able to put a movie together. I, I knew nothing about it. I was taking a night class at the University of Washington Extension program. And it was just like a lot of retired people and me. And I, you know, it was a way to um, um, maybe blow off stress because, again, I was, I was designing software at the time. Um, and this is the 90s. It's like a long time ago. And um, I, I, but so when forced to write, I think it made me, um, you know, I mean, both my films really start from like to echo what Josh said, I think it starts from a very personal place for me. Like I'm just not somebody, I've never thought like I'm a filmmaker, what film shall I make? Um, For me, I'm very project focused. So if I love a project, I will kill myself to try and get it made. If I don't particularly have a project, I'm fine to just ride off into the sunset and just hang out with my friends and live my life, you know? And and I think with Saving Face, I was trying to, like the question I had was, was you know, I, I'm, I'm gay and my mom had a very hard time with it. And I was trying to answer this question of, is it possible to be an Asian lesbian and have, you know, have both your family and romantic love in a harmonious way. And in the late nineties, it just did not seem possible. You know, like now it seems like so, but, but not then. Um, and so I think I was trying to answer that question in that movie. And I really wrote it thinking no one will ever see this. This will never see the light of day. So to answer your question about like, how do I get people to trust me? I mean, on some level, I think, you know, when you're making a movie is already ridiculous. Like it's such a ridiculous thing to like want to do and be like, let's make this incredibly expensive. Even like indie films are expensive. And I think honestly, I, I looking back, I think sometimes, you know, like I got a lot of rejection and then every now and then you start, like some people are just like, okay, we will go on this ride with you. And even, so there's a little bit of, at that point, like you, 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 there's a little bit of fake it till you make it. Cause with those people at first, like, yes, I, this is what I believe. I'm very stubborn about like what, like it, it, it's a defining quality for me in terms of, I know what it is I want and I'm very stubborn about it. Um, but even then, that doesn't mean I believed I was totally going to succeed. And I still say to, to writers when they're like, how do we make sure that an audience will like this? I'm like, you have no idea what the audience is going to like. Like, I will never know. And because you won't know, you might as well just write the thing that feels truest to you and then see what happens. Yeah, absolutely. Um Eliza, what I'd love for you to uh, expand on that because it <laughs> it looks like you agree, and it feels like again, so much of good on paper is taken from autobiography or at least yeah true moments. Well, I mean, I I totally agree with what you know Alice was saying, and just speaking to that point, you never know, you don't know till you go, and you can make a fifty million dollar movie, and it's a total turd, and everybody hated it. So you know, I always believe just as a stand up comedian that the comedy gods reward vulnerability and people want to see a reflection of themselves and their experiences. And it's okay if it's through your own lens, because at the end of the day, these are all the same experiences, just in different faces and genders and things like that. You know, this is what makes us human. And so stand up relies on that and st- throwing stuff, sticking it against, seeing if it sticks against the wall and being okay if it doesn't, but taking that swing, I always believe in betting on yourself. I've made enough pilots to know that I'd rather not get it picked up because I made the thing I wanted versus not get it picked up because I did what every executive said. And then I'm like, but I don't even know what we made. Uh, this movie per- for me was an exercise, a cathartic exercise, because this is, we're calling it a true, a mostly true story for legal reasons based on a lie. 
but this is a true story. Um, and it is the story. I did date a total sociopath who from the day I met him until a year and a half later had lied about every single thing in their life. And I started to write this just as, and of course, you know, we play with the end and stuff like that. But I started to write this as a way to get it out, a way to deal with those feelings. And then it became less as cathartic processes will reveal less. It was never, it became less about revenge or anger. And it just became about writing this great script that was so anchored in reality, even if it's an unbelievable story. And the first time I told the story, I told it a couple of years ago on Joe Rogan before we made the movie, obviously the amount of people who reached out and were like, that happened to me. That exact story happened to me. And so when I talk about the comedy gods rewarding vulnerability. Yeah, you don't want to be like the girl that got like screwed over, but there's such a reward in bearing yourself and having people say back like, we see you, it happened, you're not alone. So it was, everything w was naturally steeped in an honest story that really did happen. So even if someone doesn't like it, at the end of the day, no one can ever take <laughs> away the validity of your experience. Whether you're writing yeah. about cancer or your parents dying or a liar, if it happened, it's yours to talk about. That's what I believe. Yeah. I mean, Vote there's for me for president. To, <laughs> there's something about the emotional honesty, um, you know, whether or not specific moments are true, that your character, and this, this goes for all of you, that your characters are emotionally honest, that they are true to life and recognizable as human. Um, Mishnah, I wanted to talk about that in uh, regards to werewolves. Like, Again, this could have slid into a broader comedy. This could have slid into darker um, horror. But the whole time these characters are so grounded and so real. Um, how do you do it is my question. Like, what are the tricks? <laughs> um, I mean, I think, you know, I lived with these characters for uh, a while in my head. Then they started being characters on paper. You know, uh, you, we all know the process. And then I pitched these characters. But even after that, they just, they grow, they evolve, they change. There's more eyes on the characters. Um, but, you know, their motivations never change. They're, you know, who they are essentially and what they're afraid of and what they're avoiding and, and what they want never changes. Um, and, you know, in, in a movie like Werewolves Within, um, I feel like I, I, at least for me initially, I was dealing more in archetypes. I mean, this is largely inspired by movies like Clue and The Thing, and and um, and 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 I was dealing in archetypes. Um, so my job was not to um, to um, start out with something real. It was to subvert expectations about what this what this character is. Um, and and I, I think Josh and I are on the same page about that. Um, but I like archetypes. I like these tropes. I like Agatha Christie movies. Uh, you know, I like Snowden horror movies or Stuck at the Cabin. Um, and for me, it was just about faking left and going right, which is you know something I learned doing comedy. And and uh, and you know, people like to be surprised. Yeah, I, I wanted to ask Mishnah also. Um, so as far as I know, uh, Werewolves is your first produced feature. It is. Um, I, presumably there are ones that got away before that, but tell me a little yes. bit about your your journey, because I think we know you as like a comedy writer and essayist and a humorist, but how does that start to translate to narrative uh, feature writing? Um, well, I mean, I started as a live storyteller 
Um, I started actually, I did comedy for 10 years and then I, that sort of segued into live storytelling. Um, and, uh, I, I wrote a book and I, I did the Sundance lab after that. I did two Sundance labs actually. Really? Um, and then, you know, uh, life took over and I had to take a little bit of a, uh, take a little bit of a break, like, like Alice talked about. And, you know, um, I think I came back more seasoned and better for it. You know, I had more life experience and, and things that I had done and, and, um, you know, yeah, there's ones that got away that I still like, I'm like, I, I still, they're in my drawer. And I, you know, the second someone asks for something like this, I've got it ready to go. <laughs> let's, um, let's talk about some of these things that get away. I mean, I think we've all been in this business for some time and like, so much of succeeding in uh, film and television is tenacity. And so I want to hear about some rejection. I want to hear about the stuff that you felt like. How long do you have? <laughs> uh, this could be a multi-parter. Uh, like, what's the stuff that you're like, oh, this this should have been my break. This should have been my break. But you never get to choose that, right? Um, and anyone who wants to jump in and share first, we appreciate. What I'm really interested in is... Not just what that thing is, but how do you keep going afterwards? I could. I, I, Thank you. I, I mean, I think you can get there's two types of people. There are people that get rejected and then they use that as a reason to think that they're no good and that they shouldn't have gotten. And then there's comedians who are so egotistical and you're just like, I can't believe you got it. And especially when you're in comedy. And I say this all the time as a funny woman, you lose parts to men. You lose like it's never like hot 24 blonde it's just like could be anything could be a fucking couch like as long as that thing i've lo i've lost to different colors races genders because they're just like we need a funny person that picks up the package we need you know so it's super competitive and you know it's sort of innate in you to want to move forward and you think you're good enough for me in this movie this what started as like i said a cathartic process but that was this was something that i took great comfort in knowing i was chipping away at something after every uh, audition i didn't get on the road between gigs having something that you know you're working on which is why you see so many people working on coffee and on scripts and coffee shops uh demonstratively they're like i'm doing something it was nice to know that i had that waiting for me at home and that i had a sort of a structure to follow so I think it's why we're all creators and performers. Like you really do believe you have something to say and people would love it if you didn't say that. And, and this career is about pushing yourself forward and being like even the most insecure performer, even the quietest one, it's that you still believe that what you have to say is worth hearing. And it's just about finding someone who's going to say yes. Doesn't have to be Steven Spielberg. You know, you're just like, just give me the gig and I will run with it. Was and there... Yeah. For the, I mean, it's like, clearly this is what sort of the writing, going back to this feature, you know, was something personal. It was something that yours, that was yours, that you got to, this story you got to tell. Is there a difference for you between writing stand-up or working on stand-up and telling this story as a feature script? Like, was there something... Like they're totally the same. Yeah, they're <laughs> totally different. It's totally different. Well, it's actually... It's apples and oranges and stand-up is you live and die by your own merit in a perfect world. You know, you get up there, it's either good or it's not. doesn't matter who your dad is, doesn't matter anything. 
And this, I actually, it's nice to be able to collaborate. Uh, you know, mm. I had my director and even though I lived it, I wrote it and I had a strong point of view. There are some days where you're just so tired from carrying everything. And I would look at her and be like, what do I mean in this scene that I lived and wrote? And she'd be like, well, I think you're going to take it a little. So I'd be like, okay, thanks. Just getting to lean on another actor or a director as a stand-up comic who it is a solo sport. I find it incredibly comforting <laughs> to just like yeah. set down that load. And work with do, people and trust them. During the process of, do they like? Do they push different buttons for you? Like Stand creatively, and, yeah. Sure, sure. I mean, one is you just do it, and it's just whatever comes out, and you get a chance to polish it, and you have multiple chances to get that right until you shoot a mm -hmm. special. And with this movie, you know, you get a couple takes, but that is however you're feeling that day. If you didn't bring it, that's what's there. So, and it's you never want to let the other actors down. I mean, I've been on sets where I'm like crying half the day and it's like, well, you got to buck up for this. And so it doesn't matter. You got to leave it. You always got to leave it off camera, leave it off stage and do your best right there. And unless you're a mega celebrity, nobody cares about you having a bad day. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so, yeah. Um, Alice, let's talk about those uh, 15 years between projects. Well, I, I actually love that you asked this question about sort of the rejection and how you keep going. Um, only because it's so, it happens to be very present in my mind because I just got off, a, I, I have a, this group of friends, we're, we're ostensibly a writing group, but I really think we're a therapy group. We've been together for like 20 years. We like, you know, a lot of times none of us are writing, we just get together. But one of uh, them was just, you know, having a really, really hard day because it's like for years now, she's been trying to get this film made that I think totally should get made. And she's got a batch of like, you know, any of us probably could have had this horrible experience where a well-known production company ends up doing something really, really awful. And she was just feeling so low. And then so she'd written to us over the weekend and we all chimed in and we were talking. And she was saying how, you know, on the one hand, she felt embarrassed about it. On the other hand, we we're like the safest space for her. Right. And I guess I bring this up because I I, I think, yes, I, I totally what. Eliza just said, um, I, 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 I think that, that it's exactly right that there, there's so, you know, there are people who, who for rejection just makes you feel terrible about yourself, which to be honest, I am one of them. <laughs> and I think the thing is that, um, you kind of have to just know that that's how everyone ends up feeling. But what I sort of loved about my, my friend, like when she had the breakdown, which we've all had is that we were kind of talking about the fact that, um, to do this industry, I think you kind of have to numb out a bit. Like there's so much rejection happening or there's so much, sometimes it's not even rejection. It's just like, you're constantly feeling you're, like you're judged. I do well in that meeting. Do I not do well in that meeting? What do they think? Will this happen? Will this not happen? Right? So you develop a little bit of a thicker membrane, but then that thick membrane can sometimes make it very hard to write something that's very true. So if you want to be able to write something that's true, you have to be able to somehow get past that. So I actually think these moments when we break down and we cry are actually great. I'm like, maybe they're incredibly embarrassing. Maybe they don't come at the most opportune time. But I think it's a way to like, you know, let go of some of that numbness. And I think sort of like personally, the more... Um, I mean, I think we're a very interesting time in, in history for Hollywood right now, even just like talking about the Me Too or about Black Lives Matter or anti-Asian hate. Like this is a very interesting time where I think a lot of people are just starting to say what they really feel without knowing they might get fired. Right. And I do think this all links together where one of the things I found the hardest about Hollywood. So this long way around to your question about those 15 years, 
the first time when I made my film, I'm just not a Hollywood person. And I think the hardest thing I found about it is my agents all wanted to make me like the next big romantic comedy director, right? But that meant the next big director of straight white romantic comedies, which is fine. It's just not me. And what's interesting 15 years later, like back then, and it still happens now, but I think it's a little better. Back then you say one wrong thing, you're fired, <laughs> you know, like in, in terms of some exec just doesn't like you, you didn't do it. Now I know that still happens, but certainly for someone like me now, there's a little bit more room for candor. And I personally would love to push our industry further in that direction where candor is actually rewarded. Not, not like being an asshole, not like you say everything you think, because that's not not candor. It, it's like literally if you can say the true, like what Eliza said, the, the vulnerable part. Um, I, I think even someone saying to me, look, I'm a straight white guy. I don't know if this thing is maybe racist. I welcome that, you know, it's like, like I welcome that kind of, you know, and, and, and so, sorry, this is a, this is a, a very disorganized way of sort of saying that, like, I think that the more we push in that direction, the more I think the rejections are going to feel more human. Um, and I think there might be more room for all of us to be like, yeah, this industry is tough. Yeah. Most of us are rejected all the time, but maybe, I, I don't know, I'm just a little hopeful about the direction things are going. I feel like my experience with, you know, the two projects I've had that have been really successful were, were uh, my book and, and this film, I feel like has been very successful so far and hopefully we'll see more success. Um, but those things, I saw nothing but green lights. Um, and then it was like red light, red light, red light, red light, red light. And then something would click and then it would be just all, all green lights all the way. Um, including through the re reviewers and into to sales. Um, and I think, you know, for me, it's just like, it's really, um, it's beguiling why sometimes things just don't work and they don't click with certain people and you just don't find your people. And, and then suddenly you click with a group or a, a, a place or a sensibility of somebody else and, and then, and things just move really quickly. So, I mean, with your book, with werewolves, is can you attribute it to that, like the right people getting you? I think so. I mean, I, it sounds really simple, but, um, you know, not everyone is going to jive with your voice, no matter what your voice is. And then there are people that are just like, I've been waiting for your voice. Um, and and I think when when it hits and when you know you're in a warm room, um, it, it's a great feeling and things can happen really quickly. Do you, I, I would ask this of all of you, um, and Josh will get your rejection. You're, you're a white guy. I'm sure there wasn't that much. Um, <laughs> um, but for all of you, I'm curious to hear, like, do you think you have a strange voice? Do you think you're, you're, you're the voice of you as a writer, director, performer, whatever it is, doesn't fit easily into the the machine. I get. I feel like Josh hasn't talked in a while, but I'll answer it. Um, I don't know why I'm like moderating this. Uh, you know, I think Some, everybody. Has to I think everybody. <laughs> I think everybody feels that way, right? Which is why we end up in Hollywood because you're like, I kind of don't fit, and I seem like the like the box right i'm like blonde i'm like a cute girl 
And for me, it's been a constant battle not allowing people to put me in that box, a box that could have like probably taken me a couple steps further um, and constantly surprising people with, yeah, I may look this way and you think I'm the cheerleader who is mean to you. But in actuality, like I was in the improv troupe and I made videos and I played like whatever. It doesn't matter. Like there's Hollywood is really good at picking out stereotypes and then sort of making you pay for that for better or for worse. Mm. Um, and so it's always easy to look at someone and decide that what that's what they are. And you, I just early on have to be like, no, I'm more than that. I'm not the comic who talks about dating and I don't do it in a crass way. And I have more to say. And part of that, you get the chance to do that the longer you stick around. Uh, and you decide, do I want to play into this? Do I not? And, you know, your audience finds you. I had somebody told me, tell me recently, your brand is occasionally off brand. And that's what your brand is. And, you know, you have to just kind of realize like there, it could be easier if you just decided to be a cookie cutter. But then if you fail as that cookie cutter, then you're just a cookie cutter. And so I do always feel like slightly off. Like I'll have on a beautiful outfit, but like the earrings are wrong. Like I always feel like a couple degrees off and I never quite fit, which is why you end up as a comic. Nobody who is homecoming queen and everything was fine and played football. That's weird <laughs> if you did both. It, if, if everything worked out for you in life perfectly and you didn't understand art, you wouldn't be here. So it's a town of misfits who all think that their voice is valid and every story is valid, <laughs> you know? For sure. Um, Josh, let's let's talk about some of that uh, rejection um, and maybe finding your voice. I mean, it, it does feel like Scare Me is, you know, is unique to you. Yeah, I mean, that was how I'd self-soothe as a, you know, chubby, friendless kid in upstate New York was talking to myself and making noises. Um, thank God I had Robin Williams to like read about. And I was like, oh, he's like me and as Harry. Um so, uh, I, I, it's so funny because like I, anytime I'd, uh, find a fellow misfit, that's when it's been like quote unquote green lights for me when I've kind of gone like, Oh, well I'm not going to become Jim Carrey. I'll just get together with my friend Sam and like fuck around with the camcorder. And that turns into college humor, taking a notice and being like, why don't you come make videos for us? And me being, you know, sort of, um, resistant to that. And then that turning into like a quote unquote career it was a career. I don't need to put quotations <laughs> around it for seven years. Um, and, uh, and then finding my own voice out of that, what I was passionate about, what I cared about. Um, it took a little bit, but again, every, every time I, I found someone I gave a shit about and wanted to be in the trenches with, and I trusted and felt trusted me. It's like any relationship you kind of give yourself over to exploring some kind of creative endeavor together. And that's what I've been really fortunate, you know, to, to do is finding the fellow weirdos. And I think the, tr the tricky thing is, is, um, you know, trying to take your eye off of like the Oscar level prize and realize your success. If you're, you know, like that Bob Dylan quote, like your success, if you're doing what you want to be doing, what is success? How do you, what do you equate to it? Is it the financial, is it the, you know, the articles and accolades. And, and, um, I, I, I think once I kind of went my own way after getting out of that sort of UCB college humor machine, uh, you know, trying to get away from commercial directing where I used to direct with a partner, trying to figure out what my voice was, what I cared about. That's when things started to turn over. Mm. Um, and, uh, I don't know. Do you want to hear about how I didn't get SNL? No. Um, but I, uh, <laughs> I mean, a, a little, <laughs> 
Oh, I, I tested. It was, that was a bizarre experience. Um, but, uh, I don't know. I, I think, I, I think if you can kind of give into the, 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 um, the interpretation, the self-interpretation of success and, and de- define it to what adheres to you and what satisfies you and hits all sides of your kind of like your brain and scratches the itches. If it isn't too subjective and if you get actually a cathartic sort of a endorphin buzz out of it, then like, congrats, you know what I mean? Like you've succeeded. And the funny thing is that's what will generate the support you know, the universe will actually, mm-hmm. you know, uh, support you in all the other, all the practical ways until you need to crack open some other, um, you know, some, some other artistic means to find a way, uh, into getting, um, groceries. Um, I want to ask you all of you, what you are working on these days in as much as you can talk about it and sort of like what you've taken from the past couple of years experience, the stuff you've gotten to make, um, which again, all feels like really special and really creatively successful. Um, Michelle, let's start with you. Um, what are you working on and sort of what did you learn these past couple of years that you can apply to new projects? I don't like to jinx things. I am very, <laughs> <laughs> very superstitious. That's fair. Um, but um, let, it's it's fair to say I'm I'm continuing to work in the action comedy and horror comedy space, um, and um, I I like mixing genres. Uh, you know, it's like I like this genre and I also like comedy. Let's mix them. Um, you know, I, you know I, I like a lot. I like to see a lot of blood on the screen. I'm simple. Um, <laughs> Do you I'm think? Do you think there's stuff you learned through executing werewolves that you can apply to this new project? Sure. Oh, absolutely. But I've got to say the biggest learning experience I had was like, I came out of the Sundance Screenwriters Lab with a project and a producer and a director attached. And I wrote a hundred drafts of that script. And at the end of the day, I said, you know what? Nobody needs this movie. Um, And that was the best film school I could have ever gone to is just like that one script that I just beat my head up against the wall trying to write that just went nowhere was in a weird way more of a learning experience than the ones that have been more successful like my sample you know just Mm -hmm. then the ones every people love um I don't know why the failures the failures just are they you learn more. You learn more from your failures, I think. Well, that's so interesting, though, that you could, you after all this work on the script, that you looked at it and said, nobody wants this. And did that come from not getting traction on it? Or was there something in you that saw something in it finally that you were like, this is not what I want it to be. This is not real, whatever it was. It was just a moment of reckoning where I was just like, you know what? this doesn't need to exist. The world does not need this project. You know, you know, I mean, it's based on something that already exists and is fine all by itself. You know, this movie does not need to happen. And it was such a liberating moment in my life to just sort of say, you know what, the next one will be better. Yeah, that makes sense. And it's, it's, I don't know, it shows real self-awareness too, to be able to approach your material that way. Yeah, um, and the next script took three months and, you know, it became my sample. It got me my agent that, you know, got things going. So that's great. That's wild. Um, Alice, what are you working on these days? If you can say, or, or at the very least, can you talk about like 
how the half of it prepared you for the next stuff. Oh, wow. Um, so, uh, similar to Mishnah, I also don't like to jinx things, so I'll also keep it sort of vague, but yes, I'm attached to a couple things, one in the TV space and one in the feature space, but the thing I can't, and who knows what will happen, right? Like in the beginning, you're, you think, hooray, you're, you, you know, if you sell something, you're, you're here, but really you're just on like the five, your own five yard line of the football field. Right. And so, but I would say this, the thing, um, and I learned about myself is um, I'm really someone who, who, you know, like both the half of it um, and Saving Face, um, I, I, I've only written two scripts for myself to direct. And those were the two films I, I made. The rejection just came from like hanging on to them long enough until I found the right people. Um, not, not, but they both did get made. But that also has something to do with the fact that I otherwise don't want to uh, make something. Like I'm keenly aware of the sacrifice I make every time. Like I'm so hyper-focused on my work when it's happening that that's like two years of my life. And that's two years I'm not as present for my family or my friends in the way I'd want to be. So knowing that, uh, I just get very, very selective about what I attach to. Um, and so whenever I, you know, right now for, for whatever reasons, I, I think, you know, um, uh, maybe Asian American lesbians are like a big thing now, but I get sent like a lot of scripts. And so I'm like reading a lot of stuff and sometimes I'll read something that's really great, but I'll be like, this is great. But am I the person who I think is best for this? Cause if I'm not, um, why am I wasting anyone's time? Right. So they're like, so I think my age is like, this is a big movie. You And I'd be like, great. But I actually feel like there are a number of other people who could do this. Um, I only want to work on the thing where I'm like, no, and it's not that I'm opposed to a big movie. There might be a big movie someday where I'm like, I love this story so much and I see how I could be the best person for this. But if I don't hear the music, I just don't think it does anyone any good. So I, I think that's just, and also I'm 51 years old. So at this point, I'm like, you know, I don't know. You look Anything that happens incredible. is incredible. <laughs> Asians, man. Being when you were Asian. like, I took 15 years off, I was just like in a black hole. Like, how did that, how does that math work out? Good for you. <laughs> That's really the win. That, I, <laughs> that you look young is the win. <laughs> Even no, if you never made another movie. I'm 51 and I just made a, like a teen movie. So anyone can do anything. Anyone who's out there, it's like, maybe it's too late for me. I am telling you, if you're excited about it and it like wakes you up, like in the middle of the night, you're excited about it. It's not too yeah. late. Yeah, for sure. Let me, it's not uh, too well, late to well, look well, young. <laughs> While we're still on the subject, um, Alice, what was it about the half of it that you said, I'm the one to make this movie? Oh, well, I wrote it. <laughs> I mean, like, I mean, I, I like, wrote it. What, what was it oh. about that story? Oh, I see. Um, I, I, you know, it was another thing where, again, I had, when I left the industry, I didn't write at all. Um, I just sold a TV series to ABC when my mom got sick and I dropped everything and like left and moved to... San Francisco and was just like, I'm so burnt out. And I just thought, I'm just not going to like do, you know, I, I just didn't write at all for like seven years. And I think for me, writing happens, the good writing happens when there's something I'm emotionally moved by. And I realized that uh, uh, there had been something I've been trying to figure out about the nature of love. Like I think in our society, we tend to exalt romantic love as the best love of all. Um, and once you find your romantic partner, your life is like complete. Um, and once you get older, not that that's not a wonderful thing, but I have yet to find anyone who once they found their romantic partner, they never had other big problems. <laughs> 
like even if it stay, even if they stay together and it's great and this person's great, it's like, and then there's also all these other things, right? And in that, I started thinking about how my first true heartbreak occurred, um, you know, after I came out as lesbian, it actually occurred over a guy, over a straight white guy who was my best friend. Um, and it was, he, you know, we were, we were, we were just like, so like, we were the most unexpected best friends, but we were so close. And then he eventually had a girl, got a girlfriend who had a hard time with our being, uh, uh, close friends. And there was nothing going on between us. It was purely like platonic, but it was, it was, it made our friendship difficult. Right. And this again is the nineties where I think maybe things are a little different now or, or maybe not. But I, I do like that always stuck with me that I'm like, oh, I always want to write something about the nature of intimacy. Cause I always remember this one night we were like crying in his car and I'm like, I don't get it. Like why she has such a hard time with our friendship is something we're going to have happened between us wouldn't already have happened. And he was like, she's not threatened that we're going to sleep together. She's threatened by our intimacy. And so that is the impetus for like, for years, I held on to this like heartbreak, not, not like I was still heartbroken, but I meant I held on to this like emotion, like this confusion around it. And so the half of it was really my attempt to understand that. And then at some point, the whole, it, it took a life of its own. Like at some point it was like, now it's going to be a teen movie. And it, and it became, <laughs> it brought in a whole Cyrano de Bergerac Thing. But by the end of that movie, by the time I was done with it, I was like, oh, I see the DNA. Like, I see where it comes from, that emotionally what I was asking still still goes through it. Yeah. Um, and it works. And I would urge folks to check it out. It's on uh, Netflix. Um, I want to start to wrap up. But Josh, I do want to ask you, um, based now on knocking out these two films in a couple of years, uh, I'm sure you have stuff lined up. Is, are there things you take from werewolves that uh, you like knowledge you've learned that you can apply to your future projects? I suppose so. Yeah, I've kind of been through. I've been through the ringer and done big budget stuff. Uh, I, you know, I think. Um, I think if anything, it's just continuing to work with your friends and your your kind of tribe. You know, um, great people and and. I have a responsibility too. Uh, I'm, I am a 37 year old white filmmaker, and it's like I, you know, I'm, I'm very proud to say we have a more diverse cast than I think was initially sort of set out or perhaps imagined. Um, even even than I had initially sort of imagined it'd be, um, and we set out to now wait a second, wait a second. There, there was. No. There- there were there were there was a Latino, African American, and a Native American in the original. That's play. true. I'm not. I'm not. Not to knock Misha. I'm just saying that you know we we ended up with. Um, She's like whoa whoa. Well, yeah, no, it. I, I know. Back I'm gonna, up, back I've up. been. I've been. I've been canceled. Um, but but just in terms <laughs> of who 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 trusted to come aboard and play you know play our hero. Um, uh, play our doctor. I mean, the, 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 I, I think we, I think we assembled a really awesome, uh, ensemble here and pulled together a really, you know, considering the fact that we shot in the middle of nowhere in upstate New York, um, a, uh, a diverse crew as well. And then so something that responsibility to, you know, to, to continue to do assemble and, and work ahead. Um, and, uh, I, I don't know. I think, um, I think a big lesson is kind of, you know, also knowing kind of when to, when to sit back and, um, and, and know when you're not the best person for the job as well, you know? So all the things that I'm working on, it's like, 
hey, I think it might be better to, you know, sort of produce to this degree and take a step back and like, let's try and get some more, I don't know, like um, some some better equipped voices for this project, or at least for, you know, who who might take a better swing at, at genre than someone who's kind of done it or been doing it before. Yeah, yeah makes sense. I, I <laughs> I, were right, I promise we didn't let Mishnah down. I promise. It's very, very diverse. I'm just, I'm so looking at the film, just like I, I continue to be really, really proud of it. And I'm just, I'm excited to, uh, to, you know, to, to continue to, you know, to, to diversify and, and make diverse any project that I possibly can to, you know, use whatever privilege, dare I say, I, I have sure. to, to make entertainment entertaining, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's and it's a responsibility. Um, Eliza, I want to ask real quick about future projects. Having written this feature now, um, do you feel like that has opened something in you creatively? Do you want to do more of that? Are you concentrating on all the other stuff, uh, or does it all go together? The answer is yes to everything. I really come from the school of, you know, tons of irons in the fire. That way, when one inevitably doesn't get hot, as most don't. Um, you have another thing to focus on. And so, you know, this film was two years in the making and all through quarantine, like didn't know that Netflix was going to acquire it, just waiting. And it was kind of nice to have that out there versus knowing, like it was just something that you could think about when everything else was like, oh, this didn't go. Okay, well, I've got that movie coming out. Um, and I also think it's very difficult in Hollywood to talk about your projects without sounding like a total liar. Like when someone's like, I'm editing this and I'm directing, you're like, okay, which Starbucks do you work at? So... It's not it's not about jinxing it because I've had so much bad luck that I'm like, come get me, Jinx. I've got a rabbit's foot. Um, it's uh, I, I guess I'm reticent to say it because you sound like these things are in nascent stages and you're making them up. I can tell you I used quarantine. You know, there were all these articles about like, take your time, take a knee. You don't have to conquer the world. I'm like, you don't. I'm going to so that when this is over, I am that much more ahead. Um and that just comes from years of pushing my own boulder uphill. So I have a book. Mm-hmm. I, got, I got a book deal in quarantine. So I'm supposed to be writing that. And I have to do that. Um, and, you know, as ever, pitching TV shows, we have a pitch next week, you know, a couple cable ideas. And I had written other scripts that I have at various levels of production right now. And for better or for worse, I think a couple of things that I'm attached to you know, all eyes are kind of on this to see like box office ability. Um, so I'm excited to, you know, give it my best shot. And then of course there is my tour, which is eternal and which has a thousand dates and we're in the throes of that now. And, uh, so those are, for me, it's always like one day at a time being the best standup I can be and saying yes to everything until the wheels fall off and until people realize I've been lying this whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Sure. And I I will urge folks to um, watch Good on Paper when it hits Netflix because it's great and we want to see more stuff from you for sure. Thank you. Um, We'll wrap up as we always do by asking you what you're watching on television or in the movies these days. What's getting you excited or inspired? What are you talking about with your family, friends, loved ones? Josh, let's start with you. I, I I don't know maybe maybe it's trodden to say Mayor of Easttown Murder Dirter you know really got it's me. So that, that, <coughs> it's watching, so good. Watching. Oh my God! Get a hoogie and and uh, and watch it. I mean it was really such a hideous it surprised accent. me. So I was good. like, <laughs> I know. Is this? I was like, is this gonna be like the Undoing? And it was like way better. And Gene Smart, my God, yeah. what a gift! What a what a fucking gift! Yeah, thank you. She's amazing. 
Yeah. Yeah. On that, I, I'm watching that as well as Hacks. I yeah. love yeah. Hacks. Yeah. It's, it's so good. Amazing. <laughs> She's uh, and then so the good. other thing, I love graphic novels and I love Brian K. Vaughn. So I'm reading, I'm just rereading some of it, but the moment I'm reading Why the Last Man, which is great. Mm. So great. Yeah. Good ones. Eliza, what are you watching? Oh, I didn't know you were supposed to say books. Now I got to go back. You can say books. You can say whatever you want. No, you were like, what films are you? And I was just, I was talking to my husband, who's like a huge film nerd. And I'm I'm supposed to say the re-release of the, of Kieslowski's trilogy, (laughs) Three Colors. Like, oh, I'm so excited. But I'm really excited for this next season of Bosch because I'm in it. And I'm a huge fan of the show. And being a fan got me the part. I love Bosch. I love Hacks and Mayor of Easton. And uh, I'm excited for the new Conjuring movie. I don't care. I love horror movies. Oh, I am too. <laughs> totally. Love yeah, it. So good. We should not yeah. be ashamed of loving the stupid things we love. No. no. <laughs> you love what you love. I'm actually... Oh, sorry. No, go ahead. Miss you. Um, I'm actually... I'm going to take a departure into uh, Alex Gibney territory. I'm watching The Crime of the Century, the uh, the opiate documentary. And it yeah. is... Bananas. Ooh. It's, it's like so much more insidious and crazy than I ever could have expected. It's like it's like Hannah Arendt's banality of evil rolled into a pharmaceutical company. It's so deep and so twisted. Where is wow. it? It's on Where HBO it? Max. Okay. Um, and it's two parts, four hours of opioids. Opioid. It's four That's hours. My weekend. Of, four hours of opioids. <laughs> From, from you gotta get those four hours in either way. Yeah. <laughs> um, Good lord, these are all uh, these are all great recommendations. Thank you all so much for being here. Um, I'd love to talk to you more. Good luck with all the stuff, folks. Should check them out forever. Dog. This has been a Forever Dog production. Executive produced by Dog. Brett Boehm, Joe Cilio, and Alex Ramsey. For more original podcasts, please visit foreverdogpodcasts.com and subscribe to our shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Keep up with the latest Forever Dog news by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Forever Dog Team and liking our page on Facebook.